Perhaps you'll take note as we come to our final hymn this morning that we're singing only select stanzas of that, lest you be uh, trying to sing them all and wondering what's going on. Take a note of what the bulletin says. We come to Matthew chapter 12. Today is our studies of Matthew. The Lord of all nature, the Lord of nations, is also the Lord of the Sabbath day. We come to a well-known passage here in Matthew 12. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. I looked back as I knew this was the text to deal with next in sequence and realized that I've probably preached about the Sabbath four or five times at least in my ministry here to you. But the interesting thing to me was they certainly weren't all from this text. This is a subject that can be approached from many parts of Scripture. I find I had preached about it from Genesis when the Sabbath is first established. I had preached about it from Exodus 20 where it appears as a commandment of God. I preached about it from Isaiah 58 where there's a wonderful promise about it that I'll mention this morning. And so it's appropriate too to see this passage where the one who calls himself Lord of the Sabbath gives us a right way to interpret this important part of our worship life. Listen now as I read Matthew 12 from the beginning to verse 14. This is the Word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known that what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is God's Word. When you do the calculation that tells you that approximately or at least 15% of the population of Lancaster County is either Amish or plain Mennonites, And I think that's a minimal percentage. 
you would realize that we live amid a large block of people who very carefully avoid commerce on the Lord's day. You're all familiar with those little signs at the end of a lane that say, no Sunday sales. If you would add in a fair-sized number of conservative-minded Christians who at least pay some kind of lip service to Sunday as a unique day from the other six, I believe you would be able to see that Lancaster County, I without a doubt, has a greater proportion of citizens who are in some way at least concerned about Sabbath or Lord's Day observance, making a day of worship unique from the other six days of the week. Unique so much so that I would say we may have a greater concern within the the immediate territory where we live for this subject than than in 98 or 99% of all the other counties of the United States of America. Should we congratulate ourselves? Or is it possible that even we who claim to honor God's Word, who honor His Son as Lord, don't always know how to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? I'm sure most of you have at some time seen the movie made 25 years ago called Chariots of Fire. I don't think anyone has excelled, at least not any secular filmmaker, has excelled portraying the scruples of the Christian life on film in a better way than Chariots of Fire, made in 1980 or 81. You remember in that film, Eric Liddell, the Scottish university student, an athlete, boycotted his participation in a race that was scheduled for Sunday in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. He didn't know, apparently, until he was on the way there that he was going to have to run on what was for him the Lord's Day, and he said, I won't do it. Well, most Christians were proud to see one of their own be honored in that film, I think, and, and see Christian principle being upheld. We were, we were fairly proud of that. But I would venture to guess that hardly one in ten of all 20th, 21st century Christians would do the same thing that Eric Liddell did under exactly the same circumstances. Why? Because the Lord's Day just doesn't matter to us in quite the same way. We haven't been trained from a background of reverence for a day of worship and rest truly set apart from other activities of the world. And it's true that once we, nearly all of us, walk out of these church doors, we're already sort of half immersed, if not half drowned, in a secular soup of a society that declares that every day is exactly the same. And we're caught in it. I am too. The theme of Matthew 12, as I've mentioned it now as we've moved through here, really just builds on chapter 11 in the rise of opposition and conflict against Jesus Christ. It's been developing gradually and in somewhat harmless things, but now is becoming more and more sharp and controversial. And in chapter 12, we 
we see things almost getting downright ugly. Matthew gives us some incidents here in chapter 12 of of real controversy going on between Jesus and his critics. And the first of those incidents concerns a religious practice from the Old Testament, how to obey the fourth commandment to honor God's Sabbath day, which, of course, then was the seventh day, the last day of the week. It's rather amazing to realize that it was the controversy over something from the Scripture that had these people precipitating the decision, as verse 14 tells us here, that Jesus had to die. This is the first time it says, at least in Matthew, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. And this was the reason that triggered it. We know that a complex system of rules and regulations had been built upon the Old Testament idea of a Sabbath day of rest. I wonder if you could think of this principle this way. That is, it was as if the, the Sabbath as a, an establishment of God was kind of like a pristine stone farmhouse that might be built here somewhere in, in Lancaster from the mid-18th century. A, a beautiful gem of a house, a German-built perhaps stone house with the chimney and, and the doors and the windows that if it was preserved in its pristine shape, we would admire it and say, what a, what a beautiful house. But the problem is that the house had suffered from all kinds of additions being put on it. And over the centuries, this pristine, well-designed house had an addition shooting out this way that was Victorian with gingerbread all over it, and then a, a big addition out the back that was very modern and glass, and then coming out the other side was a wing that had a geodesic dome uh, from the late 20th century. And you looked at it, and you, you couldn't really figure out what somebody was thinking, that they would put all of those odd-looking and, and non-conforming additions onto this beautiful, simple colonial residence. Well, that's a lot like what the situation of the Sabbath was in the time of Jesus. We call it the Lord's Day. But whether you use one term or the other, I would say even the church of Jesus Christ today does not discuss this subject very much. We've almost abandoned the notion. In fact, in many sectors of the church today, people say, well, goodness, why not worship on Friday night? Why not worship on Saturday? Why not have worship all other times of the week? Because that's what people want. That's what our demographic and marketing studies say the population will respond to. What's special about Sunday anyway? I'm not saying you can't worship on any other day of the week. But when you completely reject the uniqueness of a day in seven set apart to the Lord, you have begun to make a move against Scripture. And we ask ourselves if it's practical to think that we can hallow, as Christians, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, or should we just abandon it as being irrelevant and say, look, at this period of social and cultural development with so many denunciations from the secular culture and so much pressure from commerce and everything else, it's ridiculous to try to maintain this. Well, the more I watch the decline of the Lord's day in my lifetime, the more I'm convinced we are missing something ripe with blessing. 
something that can be maintained if we will make some very conscious and determined decisions. But it's important that those decisions be anchored in a biblical understanding of the day. And that keeping the Lord's day is not about just writing out a long list of what you won't do. The Lord of the Sabbath calls us to a deeper and far better discovery of what he intends. Let's try to look at it today. As we look, first of all, at, the, at verses 1 and 2 here in Matthew 12, I want you to see how God's blessed law, God's blessed law, in other words, law meant for good, can become vandalized by human works. We know that the Sabbath actually didn't even begin in the law of God, did it? And this is important to know. It began at creation. It's a creation principle. Go all the way back to Genesis. And you'll see in Genesis 2, 2, where it says that God rested from the work of creation on the seventh day. He blessed the day and made it holy. Now, God didn't become the inactive God of the deists. There was a time when Jesus said, my Father is working even till now. The work of redemption continued, but the work of creation ended. And God hallowed a day and said, I am setting a day apart, and you need to observe what I'm doing. Theologians call the Sabbath day in creation a creation ordinance, a principle embedded in the very nature of the way God made the world. It was a gift of His common grace to all of humanity, not just to Israel, not just to believers, not just to Christians, to everyone. Everyone needed the rest and the renewal that such a day would provide, believer and non-believer alike. God wanted us to know how to manage our time so that time doesn't end up managing us. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Shabbat. It means cessation from toil, to come to a stop, to stand back, to pause, and consider perhaps the work that you've done and the strength that you have to do it, and maybe to plan and to look ahead. But more than that, to recover and to look to your God and receive the strength that He is ready to supply. It's not because work is a bad thing. Work is not a bad thing. God blessed work. But never-ending work tends to grind men and women down spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And you stop and think about Moses leading Israel out of Egypt to escape centuries of slavery. Well, this was a situation where the people of God never once got a day off. Shabbat was unknown to Israel for all those centuries that they were in Egypt. And so no wonder the idea of the rest that God would give in a promised land where they could dwell was a wonderful prospect before them, as well as a heavenly prospect. Well, then after the creation ordinance, the law of God came along through Moses, as you know, in Exodus 20, and when the commandments were given, the fourth commandment, of course, A worship commandment says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. All God was doing was enshrining in the code of law what was already implicit in his creation principles. Take a day, 
the last day, the, because that was the creation pattern, and use it to rejoice in the Lord. Stop doing all the tiresome, toilsome commerce that wears you out and the ex- exchange of things for money and the calculating of taxes and, and buying and selling and all of that thing and rest. In fact, Exodus 35, 2 has a, a word with a little preposition in it where it says the Sabbath should be a rest unto the Lord. In other words, rest in the Lord's direction. I say, not just fall asleep, not just oh, collapse, rest towards the Lord was the direction for his day. Now, as a matter of fact, you may be surprised, and I was surprised to be reminded again as you search in the Scripture, there aren't an awful lot of other details about what should or should not be done on the Sabbath. The Scripture didn't load the day with detail. It said, stop commerce and rest toward the Lord, and left most of the details to be worked out. Well, you can guess what happened. Human religious leaders, leaders in Israel, were more than happy to fill in the details that human beings needed. Should I do this? Should I do that? What about this? What about that? Oh, don't worry. We'll tell you. And the rabbis, the temple and synagogue leaders, were happy to write volumes of detailed things to tell the people what not to do, primarily what not to do, a little bit about what they could do. Most of what they wrote we call the Talmud. You don't, I think I pointed out not long ago, the Talmud are commentaries by human rabbis on the Scripture, not the Scripture itself. The Talmud is, is huge. It fills many, many volumes. If you had a, a collection of the entire Talmud up to the modern age, it would fill a shelf. It's enormous. There were 24 chapters of Talmud regulations on the Sabbath day alone. They specified what size piece of wood you could pick up, how much it could weigh. Well, it better not be firewood because you weren't supposed to start a fire because starting a fire would mean you were cooking and you couldn't cook because that was work. If your garment had a tear in it, you could have a needle and thread and take one stitch, but not two. One would be repair, two would be sewing, and that's work. And on and on it went. Fine, moral hair-splitting of what could and could not be done. He could go into many things. In the time of the Maccabees, which was in the era between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that silent period of several hundred years, the Maccabeans lived. These were folks who took Sabbath-keeping so seriously that they certainly would not lift a weapon on the Sabbath day to fight. And there was a major occasion where a whole group of Maccabeans were wiped out, man, woman, and child, because they would not pick up their weapons because the attack came on the Sabbath day. Now, those are serious Sabbath keepers, and they died for what they thought was right. But by the time of Jesus, you see, it was these rules in place that Now the disciples were being accused of breaking. They were actually being accused of being reapers or threshers on the Sabbath day here in Matthew 12, too, as they, with their hands, simply pulled some grain off and popped it in their mouth like you might eat a snack of cereal or something like that. And they said, oh, Jesus, look what your disciples are doing. Breaking the Sabbath. 
What were they breaking? God's word? No. Human rules. Human rules that had built up a a system of frustration and anxiety where you hardly knew where to turn on the day because you just about couldn't avoid doing something that would break some rule, maybe one you'd never even heard of. And the people were weary and loaded down with the moral obligation of this. A day that was supposed to refresh and renew the people of God had become like putting two, you know, you hold your arms up and take two great big sacks loaded with as much weight as you could possibly bear, and you had to carry those around. That was what the Sabbath day was like. A moral anchor hung around your neck as human vandals literally destroyed the intent of the blessed law of God. Well, then, notice how Jesus comes to demonstrate what true obedience to the biblical Sabbath is in the second place. True obedience to the biblical Sabbath. What the disciples were doing by gathering with their hands this grain actually was explicitly allowed in the Old Testament if they had only known the Word of God. Deuteronomy 23, 25, look it up. There were principles that said, you know, you didn't have public roads, and a lot of times people had to actually cut through trails or paths that would go through planted fields or or vineyards. And the law said you were allowed with your hands to gather something to satisfy your hunger from a stranger's field. You were not allowed to bring a sickle and a basket and start chopping it down. You were allowed to take grapes off a neighbor's grape arbor, but not bring a basket and fill it with grapes. This was allowable. This was the same kind of principle by by which Ruth gleaned the leftover grain at the edges of the field in the Old Testament. It was allowable. And Jesus actually challenged these people and said, have you not read? Do you see that phrase there? He says it a couple times. Haven't you read? In other words, you're the keepers of the law. Have you read it? Do you even know what it says? Jesus, you see, is the one who didn't come to violate the law. He already told us in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 17, that his purpose was to fulfill and bring a true understanding of the law of God. But here were these people that knew only the letter. They didn't even know the spirit or the intent of God as he gave his blessed law. Look at the things Jesus raised to remind them when he said, have you read this? One of the things he mentioned was the time in 1 Samuel 21 when David and his band of men were fugitives running from King Saul. David had been promised the throne, and there were many who wanted to help him because they knew that God's prophet had anointed him the next king, and they wanted to help the next king. And here came David with some of his band who'd been turned into outlaws by Saul, and they came to the headquarters of of worship where the tabernacle was, and Ahimelech was the priest there. And the background is that that one of the offerings that was made was fresh-baked bread put out every day on the altar as a symbolic offering to God, and then it was taken off the next day when new bread would be put there. And once it was taken off because it had been consecrated, only the priests were supposed to eat it. They were allowed to eat it. But it wasn't supposed to be sold, for example. Well, along comes David and says, Ahimelech, I'm hungry. My men haven't eaten. Can you do anything for us? And Ahimelech was in a moral quandary for a moment, and his wheels turned, and he said, this is God's anointed. 
He's in genuine need. I will take the bread that's now being taken off the altar as the new bread's being put on, and instead of our eating it, I will give it to this man who has been anointed by God's prophet Samuel. And Ahimelech judged that to be a right thing to do, and Jesus speaks about it here with approval. Here was a breaking of a a legal worship command. Why? Because of a dire human necessity. Well, there's other mention here. Quickly, Jesus also mentions the idea that, that priests, notice he says a strange thing. He says that the priests who serve in the temple actually desecrate, verse 5, desecrate the Lord's day. How do they do that? Well, they're working. They're working as they bring sacrifices and lead the people in their prayers in the same way I'm working right now. You may not think I am, but this is my work. This is what you pay me to do. And I must be desecrating the Lord's day by earning my living on Sunday morning. Jesus says, look, the servants of God do this, and it's with all understanding by God that that's the way it will happen. The law must be revered, but human necessity must also be considered. The Sabbath was given to promote honor to God and compassion, in other words, towards the men and women whom God loves. And he doesn't say it here, but he does in Mark 2.27 on the same occasion when he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath in Mark. There, Mark 2.27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Get the prepositions right. The Sabbath was made to bless man. That was God's intent, to bring the blessing of being right with God and and related in worship to God, and resting in, trusting in God. Not a day so fenced in by rules and regulations that you get turned inside out and forget all about mercy towards people God has made. Now, there were some Sabbath regulations specifically, again, in these man-made rules that said, okay, there can, and, and by the way, this is a trick once again that was put up to Jesus in verse 9. Uh, when Jesus was, or 10, I'm sorry, when Jesus was asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Aha, we'll get him. Do you know what the trick was? The trick was you were allowed to save a human life according to the rabbi's regulations. If somebody was bleeding to death, you were allowed to stop the bleeding. But if somebody needed surgery or needed, you know, healing of something that could just as easily wait till next week, You weren't supposed to do that. So you see the trick and the trap? Is it allowable to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus looks at the crowd. He doesn't even answer the question. He looks for someone in the crowd who has a physical need, a hand withered by paralysis or muscular disease of some type, whatever it was, nervous disorder, and he heals that person. And it says one hand was made as whole as the other. Could that have waited till tomorrow? Of course. Jesus was saying, I'm going to declare that the Sabbath is the day for the wholeness and the wellness and the well-being of being right with God to even come into a physical life. And he says more than that, you see. He told them first that, that all their ideas about the, the temple or about the, the, you know, the day being honored in its letter or wrong, and they needed to know its spirit. 
But now he brings us to the point of asking a question. If Shabbat rest was for the physical, mental, and spiritual restoration of people, we have to ask this question thirdly. How will we honor the Lord of the Sabbath? You know, if I bring this this subject of the Lord's Day up, you might subconsciously sort of whisper to yourself, well, I'm doing okay on this one. can't catch me here. (laughs) Um, I'm in church nine Sundays out of ten. Once long ago, I actually quit a job because they made me work once in a while on Sunday. And uh, boy, whenever it's absolutely possible, I avoid them all. So, hey, I'm doing okay with this. Don't press me on this subject. Well, I want to press you to notice something here as you wonder how you might honor the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice what Jesus says here. First in verse 6, as he says, one is present here who is greater than the temple. Did you ever notice that phrase? It's a very important phrase to what's going on here. And then in verse 8, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you have to think about what those kinds of sentences meant, what the impact of those things was on their original hearers. Here were people, Pharisees, to whom no institution on earth took precedence over the temple. And no form of obedience took precedence over keeping of the Sabbath day. And what had Jesus just said? Somebody standing right in front of you who's greater than this temple, and somebody standing right in front of you who is Lord and commander of this Sabbath day. When you hear that, if you can possibly hear that the way they did, it should be no surprise that the next thing they did was decide to kill him. Because he just said he was greater than their mightiest religious institutions. I am Lord of this day. Jesus was saying, I in myself fulfill everything that the Sabbath day only symbolizes. Look back to what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 11 when he invited people, come to me. Come to me and receive the rest of God. What's the Sabbath? A day of rest toward the Lord. Jesus was saying, come to me and be at rest. Be at peace in God. I fulfill, I personally provide that which the Sabbath symbolizes and represents, and so it is I who must be honored on this day. There's a strong hint of this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul there wrote to the Colossian believers, and he said, don't let anybody judge you based on what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath. In other words, he said, are people picking away at your Sabbath observance? Here's what he went on to say. These things are but shadows of things to come. The reality is found in Christ. There's Paul saying the same thing that Jesus said here. Sabbath, is it important? Oh, you bet it's important. It's a day appointed unto the Lord by his own creation ordinance and his law. And what should it ultimately lead you to? An understanding that in Jesus Christ... That which was only a symbol or a type or a foreshadowing is now completely fulfilled. And the early church understood this. 
And that's why, very quietly but naturally, in the book of Acts, we find that without any drum roll or trumpets about it, the the Christian Sabbath became the first day of the week, the day in which Jesus rose from the tomb. And on that new Lord's Day, as we tend to call it, we come to our Father with praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator, through whom we are able to know God and rest in God and discover peace with God and reconciliation by his cross and his resurrection and his ascension. These things, you see, now become the crowning achievement that fulfill everything the Sabbath ever pointed to. I always like on this subject to go back to the great statement of Isaiah 58:13 which I've preached on before here. A wonderful promise from God that I think gets at the spirit of the Sabbath, not the letter. There the Lord spoke through Isaiah the prophet to say if you will call my Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable and you will honor it by not going your own way and doing whatever you please Then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to rise, ride upon the heights of the land. You see, God's intention is that in an institution like the Lord's Day, now that we know Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish Sabbath, we would revel in the joy of God, the delight of His grace. And when we think of that, and then we assume that the best way to set apart the Lord's day is merely by not mowing your lawn, or not purchasing gasoline at the gas station, or not eating at a restaurant, or some other 21st century of Talmud regulations, we might be missing it completely, you see. Am I suggesting you should just go out and do those things and do anything else? No. I'm suggesting the day indeed should be limited from all possible commerce and work. That's the reasonable expectation we're given. But in checking off that list, you're not keeping the Lord's day. Negative rules will not capture the Bible's goal for this day. It it can even possibly miss the whole point. The true measure of Sabbath keeping is Are you observing a day on which you determine that above all else you will drink deep at the fountain that is Jesus Christ? This is the day God has made for that task. God wants us to have a day in seven on which we stop being consumers of goods and services long enough to become ourselves consumed by the thrill of knowing Him, praising Him, thanking Him, and seeking after Him in the glories of His Word and in the wonders of our Savior. Eric Liddell, that British runner who would not race in the Olympics on Sunday, in the film at least, whether this is a true quote, I'm not sure, but in the film he tells his sister, God the Lord has made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. The Lord's day is for our taking pleasure in the Lord and knowing that He takes pleasure in His believing people. And that certainly begins with corporate worship. Not, of course, that you can't worship on your own or in your family, but hearing and pondering God's Word expounded 
uniting in prayer, hearing other voices say that creed. And I heard someone say this week, how I love to hear the whole congregation pray the Lord's Prayer together. I knew what they meant. It's unique to have corporate worship. An act of worship is like a shaft of sunlight. Just last week I saw one of those cloudy days when we were saying, is spring never going to come? And, and near dusk I was looking at the western sky and a, one of those beautiful calendar scenes came of a shaft of golden sun just piercing the clouds. That's what Sunday ought to be. A shaft of experiencing the pleasure of God in the midst of a weary week. And this coming to God and consecrating a day for him continues as we not only worship, but we look for works of human mercy to do. You know, that might be as simple as laying down on your floor and playing with Legos with a four-year-old. Maybe that's a work of mercy. It might be as simple as a phone call to a lonely person. It might be as simple as turning your full attention to your spouse for a talk that really listens to him or her for the first time all week, breaking bread with dear friends, looking for a shut-in who you can encourage. The Lord's day is for mercy to his people. That's one way God takes pleasure in us. And I love the promise of Hebrews 4.9 that looks forward to the future and says there yet remains. You haven't experienced it yet. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Heaven. That's what it's talking about. The ultimate Sabbath. We sang John Newton's hymn as we opened the service this morning. Day of all the week, the best. Why? Because it's an emblem, a representation, a symbol of eternal rest. And the hymn goes on to say, Here, Lord, afford us a taste of our everlasting feast. For a Christian, the Lord's day, his Shabbat, should be a small but tantalizing foretaste of unending pleasure, rest, reconciliation, peace, realized in the presence of God, our Savior. I pray that you, his people, You who call Jesus Lord of the Sabbath can say from your hearts, not by the letter, but by the spirit and the enthusiasm and the pleasure of knowing God's grace, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And God will be blessed in our midst. Let us pray together. Father, we realize that we too can fall prey to what the Pharisees were doing. Maybe they were pretty obvious with all their legalization of everything. But forgive us for ever thinking that we have honored your day only in what we do not do. Teach us that there are things that we should set aside. But teach us to make this a day to drink deeply of Jesus Christ, to know the pleasure of his grace and the blessing of an eternal hope. Sanctify your people to this task, we pray, week after week until we know fully that Sabbath rest for the people of God. For Jesus' sake, amen.